Father Greg, you are a Jesuit and you have been instrumental in setting up the Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles and that's for um, gang members. Can you first tell me about the area in which you work in Los Angeles? Well, now Homeboy Industries serves the whole county of Los Angeles, but when it was born, it was in in the poorest parish, Catholic parish in the diocese, a place called Dolores Mission. And uh, it was in the middle of two public housing projects, which were the largest grouping of public housing west of the Mississippi. So it was huge, very densely populated with eight gangs at war with each other. And um, so uh, and that's where it was born. And then it's grown now to, to be the largest gang intervention rehab and reentry program in the world. No, that's an amazing journey. How did that happen? I mean, how were you sent there? I- I suppose I'm thinking you, you just arrive in a parish and say, oh, it's riven by gang warfare, I must do something about it. Well, I, I think initially when I first got there, you know, we were dealing with other issues like immigration principally because uh, it's a highly Mexican and undocumented community. Um, but then uh, I started burying kids in 1988, uh, kids who were killed in our streets and the shootings morning, noon and night. And I, I buried my 194th young person killed uh, just two weeks ago. Uh, so not all from that parish, of course, but because I run this very large gang intervention program, I get asked to do this a lot, you know. So, and there's so many, I'm in 23 different detention facilities where I say mass. So um, I know a lot of gang members, Um so, you know, we just evolved over the years. Uh, initially, there, was a, a, um, there were all these gang members who were middle school, junior high age gang members who nobody wanted them. So they'd been given the boot from their home school. And they were wreaking havoc in the projects. They were violent, selling drugs. So I went out to them. That was the first thing I did was to ask them, uh, if I found a school that would take you, would you go? And... Uh, to my surprise, every single one said, yeah. And then I couldn't find a school that would take them. So we, I had to start my own. So I, I asked the nuns in the convent on the third floor of our parochial school if they wouldn't mind so much moving out. And so it turned, I turned the convent into a school. And that brought gang members to the church, and that was kind of the upset the apple cart a little bit because suddenly all these gang members... We're at a church, and aren't churches supposed to be hermetically sealed, you know, good people in and bad people out? So that kind of presented a gospel challenge, I think, to the whole parish. And then they said, if only we had jobs. And so myself and the women, we marched around the factories surrounding the projects, trying to find employers willing to hire them. Now, just to, this thing about them being in the school... Um, like, were they? did they behave in class? Because, you know, people, there are teachers who teach in inner city schools where there's deprivation, and it's chaotic, and they're attacked, and it it just doesn't work. Like, it sounds so easy, almost like an American film. They come in and they say, oh, great, we're now in school, and we'll sit and learn. Oh, no, it, it, it was, it was uh, I once had a principal who lasted two days. I had a nun in full habit who came and wanted to volunteer, and... Uh, when uh, and she was trying to help a gang member with his math, and he turned to her and told her to go fuck herself. 
And so the next thing I knew, uh, she was out of there faster than you can say, you know, have it. So, oh, it was really a war zone. But they showed up every day because in the end, the teachers that stayed were the ones that loved them. And you can't learn anything from somebody who doesn't like you. So, and to this day, we have a school with 115 students and they're all gang members and they're they're not difficult to educate. They're impossible to educate. But somehow they show up every day and I'm, I'm going to do the graduation. I'll speak at the graduation in two weeks. And they graduate somehow, you know, uh, it's the power of tenderness, you know, teachers who just love them into submission. And for some reason they show up every day because that's a very compelling foreign thing for them. So tell me about the work then. They got the education. How did you then start getting jobs? Because that wouldn't have been easy either. Yeah, well, we couldn't really find a felony-friendly employer, so that was kind of not very forthcoming. So we started to invent things and fundraise to pay them. So we had graffiti removal crews, maintenance crews, landscaping. Uh, we had a crew of enemy gang members who built our child care center for the church. Um, and they worked, did they do it together, even though they had been shooting each other previously? Yeah, that was the whole thing. You know, it was not just gainful employment, but that was also their common self-interest. All enemies, rivals, they all wanted the same thing. They wanted a reason to get up in the morning and a reason not to engage in gang activity the night before. They wanted a reason for their moms to be proud of them and their kids not to be ashamed. So they all had that in common. So it was always tense until you get to a place where they, you know, you discover that everybody's more similar than different, and that, in fact, they're almost identical in their stories of trauma and damage and abuse. And so um, so before too long, they've discovered a union that's deeper than anything they've ever known in their families, and certainly stronger than the bond they had known in a gang. It must have been an amazing thing for two enemy groups to come together and instead of shooting each other in that you know brutalized way and hating themselves and hating each other, that they they build a daycare or childcare center for the community. Yeah, well, the childcare center would have taken six months to build, but it took us two years because we we had gang members build it, you know, under the very patient tutelage of some contractor. Um, but then they you know they discover. Uh, you know, who the other person is. And you can't demonize somebody you know. That's impossible for human beings. You, you can't sustain it. And so that's, um, and that's what happened, you know. And, and the only way you can shine a light on, on the empty, hollow, dark gang past is in the light of community. So community trumps gang. And that's the experience I think that all of them feel. So, especially with our staff, um, you know, they, they have a palpable experience of tenderness. And then they're ready to move on from us, and they choose to be tender in the world. And that's the greatest sign of maturity and resilience. And, um, and it's what it looks like when a gang member re-identifies who he is in the world. You wrote a book about your experience um, called Tattoos of the Heart, 
Now, the tattoos is another important part of the homeboy industry story. Yeah, again, I think part of the issue is at no point have... We never tell gang members, here's what will fix you, you know. But if you listen humbly, gang members will tell you what it is that they need. So that was the same with uh, tattoo removal. Um, You know, they were alarming and uh, provocative. And to get them removed sort of sends a signal to both friend and foe alike that this is part of my past and I'm a whole lot more than the worst things I've done. And so uh, in the old days, you know, gang members will come and say, I want to remove, you know, this tattoo or that tattoo. And we used to say um, elbow down, neck and face. Those are the only (laughs) ones we do because it's an expensive timely time consuming process and i remember once a kid uh a gang member lifted his shirt and he had a big tattoo on his chest i said well you know keep your shirt on no one will see it and he said my son will see it and i said okay very painful process way more painful to take it off than to put it on so um so we took it off but so that you know we used to have a, a a dermatologist who gave me an hour a month where he'd chip away at these various tattoos. And then... Uh, How did it begin? Did somebody come to you? Yeah, well, the first one uh, that sort of gave birth to it was a guy named Frank, who I didn't know, who um, came to see me two days out of uh, Corcoran State Prison, which is a big prison in California. And he's sitting in front of me and tattooed on his forehead was fuck the world. It just was like a billboard filling the entire space. And he looked at me without uh, missing a beat. And he said, I am having a hard time finding a job, you know. And and I I, um, didn't know where I would send him. So I ended up hiring him. He worked at our bakery for two years. And then I went looking for a doctor. And uh, the doctor gave me the time to, to do it and. It was for Frank and a couple others, just a handful. And then before too long, I had 3,000 gang members who wanted this service. So a huge waiting list. And so we did everything. We, then we bought our first machine, and now we have three machines and a whole clinic that's uh, designated. And about 42 volunteer doctors. We pay one physician's assistant who, who comes regularly, but all these other doctors donate their time. We train them, and then they donate their time. Because it's a, a skill. You have to be certified to do it, you know. Yeah, and as you said, it must be very painful to remove. It's very painful, but we remove 46,000, or perform 46,000 treatments a year. And sometimes it takes about 12 treatments to remove. Like with Frank, it, you have to wait every six weeks. Probably took us 15 treatments to finally erase, and now he's a uh, security guard at a movie studio, and there's no trace of this left, you know. And tell me about the other jobs that are available that have been created in Homeboy Industries. Well, we've created eight um, social enterprises, beginning with Homeboy Bakery. That was our first enterprise. A month later, we started Homeboy Tortillas, which was in a separate location uh, in this old Grand Central Market, kind of a open-air market. And somebody had a, a tortilla machine, so we, I asked him if I could rent it for a dollar a year. And so we did that. 
And once we had plural, we call our, called ourselves Homeboy Industries, you know. Uh, but not everything worked. Homeboy Plumbing was really not hugely successful. <laughs> Who knew? People didn't want gang members in their homes. I, 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 <laughs> I did not see that coming. But uh, anything worth doing is worth failing at, I think. That, that'll be on my tombstone. Um, and now we have eight enterprises. So we have several restaurants. We have Homegirl Cafe. Would there be girl gangs? Yeah, they're, they're only, again, uh, girls represent about 5% of uh, the overall 120,000 gang members in L.A. County. So it's primarily a guy thing. And we have Homeboy Diner, which is the only place you can get food in our city hall in Los Angeles. We have a restaurant at the American Airlines uh, Terminal uh, at LAX International Airport. And these are staffed by former gang members? Yes, right. And, and, and running well and making a profit? Yeah, you know, we, we're a $14 million annual operation, and the businesses supply about a, a third of what we need. Uh, I'd love it to be 50% one day, but we're, we're moving in that direction. And where does the rest of the money come from? We beg it, you know, because uh, we don't really, we don't get government money. And uh, so that's a tough, to raise $10 million a year is really the only thing that keeps me awake. I hate that part. Yeah, and that would be part of your job now. How did you get into this work in the first place? Well, again, you, you, it, when you're faced with some enormously complex social dilemma like gang violence, and I didn't know anything about it, and, and I certainly didn't know that the parish I was assigned to was so gang-involved. Um, so what's your choice? You, know, you can bury your head in the sand or you can roll up your sleeves. So, so as a community, we rolled up our sleeves and... It was a great uh, um, test of faith in many ways. But above all, it was the triumph of kinship that were people in the parish would, would were able to look at these gang members and say, you're my son or daughter. Even if I never brought you into the world, you're my son, you belong to me. So, And that's the whole goal. I think that's what, you know, the only thing that mattered to Jesus was inclusion and that we would arrive at this kinship of God, that you may be one, that there is no them, there's only us. And so that's the hope. Uh, Jesus doesn't care about anything else. And all the things that ruffle our feathers don't bother Jesus, I don't think. That's the only thing he wants. He wants to imagine a circle of compassion and then imagine nobody standing outside that circle. What he hopes for is the dismantling of barriers that exclude. And uh, so the most demonized, at least when I began 30 years ago, the most demonized sector of the population was the gang member in Los Angeles. It was the lowest rung on the totem pole. And so, and I think the call for people of faith and Christians is to stand at the margins because that's where Jesus stood. And you stand at the margins and you look under your feet and you discover that the margins are getting erased precisely because you chose to stand there. And were you ever scared because when people have been brought up with violence as a a justifiable reaction, let's say an instinctive reaction, it's very hard to undo that. And, you know, if you've killed somebody... That is a massive step 
to make mm. in life and a step that I think probably hardens your own spirit when you do mm. it. So first question in this regard is, did were you ever scared that these groups, a fight would get up, as happens in any ordinary life, and it would erupt into something that you couldn't or couldn't be controlled by the people who worked for you? And did that happen? Yeah, we we have fights, you know, at our place, and you know, it stands to reason that we would because we have so many enemies and rivals. And among our workers, you know, they kind of get used to working side by side with people. But if somebody comes in, you know, you can always tell is somebody coming in to be provocative or somebody coming in to actually seek help for himself. So occasionally we have things, you know. And would you ask them to leave? I mean, would they be carrying a weapon? Yeah, some sometimes they are carrying weapons and. In the old days, I mean, I was caught in a lot of shootouts many, many times, you know, but I never took it personally. I mean, I'd be riding my bike in the housing projects at night and and I'd be talking to this set of gangs. In those days, it was really the wild, wild west, you know. And then suddenly people would start shooting at this group of people where I was standing. And, and it was always like the Secret Service with the president, you know, they'd tackle me to the ground and <laughs> cover me with their bodies. Because that it was really quite noble. They, they, the last thing in the world they wanted was from. They'd rather take a bullet than have me take one. But that happened quite a bit, you know, because the shooting was just constant. Helicopters always around, trying to find the shooter. And um, fortunately, it's not like that anymore. Uh, and is that because of your program? Do you think? Well, I think you know. Again, it stands to reason that if there's no place anywhere that engages more gang members in positive activity than we do. And if we're engaging them in positive stuff, it stands to reason that law enforcement won't have to engage them in negative stuff. So I think everybody acknowledges that Homeboy has played a factor. Every year, gang-related homicides increased from the mid-'80s until 1992, when we hit a thousand gang-related homicides a year, that's just gang-related. In Los Angeles. In Los Angeles County, and then every year since '92, it's decreased. So it's been cut in half that number, and then that number's been cut in half again. So we're somewhere in the 300 range now a year. Everybody acknowledges that homeboy had a lot to do with that because we engage and galvanize the imagination of the gang member. So if we always, in L.A., we talk about freeways, which is, you know, the the main way to tr- travel in Los Angeles. And on every freeway, there are multiple exit ramps where you get off the freeway. Well, before Homeboy, this was sort of a crazy highway that had no exit ramps. And, and the world would shake its fists at this highway, this violent, terrible highway of gang violence. But it, there was no way to get off, you know, and, and until Homeboy. And so that doesn't mean that we've hired 120,000 gang members. But there isn't a gang member in L.A. that doesn't know about Homeboy Industries. And it, 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 it's intriguing to them. Maybe like a heroin addict who says, yeah, I'm not ready to enter recovery, but it's consoling and heartening to know that when I am, there's a place to go. And when they go to that place, have you rules and boundaries and regulations? Yeah, we. it's a little bit like a drug rehab. We presume nobody is getting high on crystal meth. you know. So at our place, you can't engage in gang activity. 
you know, so you can't really pee in a cup and then do a test to say, oh, you're still active. So you have to keep your ear to the ground. You have to watch the walls to see if any of your workers are writing provocations on the walls. And um, so it's hard to get in our program. Everybody wants in. Um, and 95% of all gang members want to have a life. Um, 5% are really mentally ill. But the rest are, you know, if, if given an opportunity and a chance, they'd embrace it, you know. Um, but it takes what it takes in recovery for somebody to wake up to, uh, you know, their own desire to have a life. The statistics you offer are very compelling in terms of the success of what maybe the more extreme right in America might call pinko liberal thinking. And there is a strong strain in American culture which says you lock them up and throw away the key for people like this, or you execute them in some mm -hmm. states. Um, have you <clears throat> met with criticism from that source, that more right-wing source? Well, it's interesting because the right wing now is oddly on the right side of this issue. So so I've been doing this for 30 years and Homeboy's been around for 26. And um, in the early days, that tough on crime, especially gang crime, was really pronounced. And that's why for the first 10 years of our existence, we'd get death threats, bomb threats, hate mail, because the this was such a demonized population, so if you helped them, it was a short hop to to be demonized yourself. And that, that was all tough on crime, wipe them out, throw away the key. But now, if, if, the, if your choice is tough or soft, no one will choose soft. But if your choice is tough or smart, everyone will choose smart. People would rather be smart than tough. And that's exactly what happened. So I'm, I'm, they're strange bedfellows now where, where you watch really ultra-conservative right-wing politicians even who say, oh, this is, maybe this is the best investment we can make. So I'm surprised by it. You know, we're, um, you know even right-wing people are more than left-leaning types. We'll talk about second chances. And now if somebody leaves a prison, don't we have an obligation to try to lend them a hand? So it's, it's, I'm happy to say that that's changed. But that's kind of a, a paradigm shift. Or They say if you want to change the world, you, you, uh, you need to change the metaphor. And that's what happened in L.A. To good effect, you know, the metaphor before was tough and wipe them out. That by 92, we had shifted to Let's be smart. What if we were to invest in these people rather than futilely and endlessly trying to incarcerate, incarcerate our way out of this problem? You talk about investment. I mean, God knows how much it would cost to keep a prisoner in a high-security prison. Are you disappointed that the government doesn't give any funding to this? Well, they have in the past, and it's all this, uh, you know, I, I know here in Dublin you experience, or in the country, austerity and measures that and so this is not something that's on anybody's high priority list uh, so even as smart as it would be to do it you know because it it basically costs the same amount of money to house a prisoner for a year in a california state prison as it does to to pay 
uh, tuition fees for one year at Harvard, and which is outrageous. So our, our program saves easily $50 million a year for the state and the same amount for the county. Otherwise, they'd have to be um, jailing these folks. And so, but I don't know why. That's never been a very compelling argument for anybody. Mm-hmm. Their eyes glaze over when, when you tell them this saves you money. Um, Not so smart. Yeah, I don't know why that doesn't work. But uh, Can you tell me then, for your own personal life, I mean, to do that kind of work, what is it that sustains you and, and drives you and has kept you for, through all those years? Well, I, I'll even speak locally here. Yesterday, I had the great privilege of going to St. Declan's. And uh, so I was there for the last hour of the day. So I visited classrooms. and That's a Jesuit-run school for children with emotional um, pro- issues. Yeah, and with a lot of special needs. And when I arrived, you know, some kid, big kid, was being is having a tantrum. And, and just watching that staff. And so uh, I was very moved by it. And I sat in the classroom and... And it was just so difficult for the teachers and the aides to help these kids stay focused, but they just did a remarkable job. Well, afterwards, I spoke to the faculty. I was so moved by them. You know, they were, and this is how I feel in my life, that I looked at them and I thought, boy, you're just the luckiest people around because you get to show up for work every day and your life is saved because you show up at work. What's ruinous is when we, we think we're showing up somewhere and we're going to transform lives or we're going to save lives or rescue kids. But the beauty of, of what they were doing was you could tell that their lives were saved every day they came in. You know, it, that place and those kids saved those teachers from self-absorption and, and the tyranny of their own cleverness and, and saved them and rescued them from from, uh, you know, whatever it was that would be obsessive for them or precious. or And that's the way I feel at Homeboy, you know, because people sometimes will saddle me with a reporter once ended an interview by saying, how does it feel to have saved thousands and thousands of lives? I said, I don't even know what you're talking about. I think saving lives is for the Coast Guard. You know, I... I show up every day and I know that my life is saved, that I, when I'm impatient, they, the homies rescue me from my impatience. You know, when I'm utterly certain of the rightness of my position, they douse me with a big bucket of humility. When I lack courage, they save me from my cowardice. It goes on and on. But what's ruinous is if you come in, to a place like that and say, I'm going to fix you, I'm going to save you, I'm going to rescue you. All I know for sure is that uh, that I'm saved by walking in. And in the end, the byproduct of that is that you don't burn out, that you can stay anchored in the present moment. You can really and truly be faithful to the duty to delight in who's sitting right in front of you. And people always come at me and say, oh, it must be so hard, you know, and that's where I feel the most fraudulent, because it's mainly hilarious, you know, and uh, I had a homie who was practicing, giving a lot of talks, and 
oh, this made me laugh so hard. And he, he was telling me, he was expounding on what he thought the elements of, of a good speech was. And I will tell me. Well, I, you have to pepper your talk, he says, with self-defecating humor. He <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, no shit. Yeah. And, uh, and he goes, is that right? Well, no, it's actually self-deprecating, you know. But I just, it's more moments like that than utterly charming. But the main thing is, is I just stand in awe every day at what these folks have to carry which keeps you from standing in judgment at how they carry it, you know. And my life has never been presented ever, not once, with the kind of challenge and difficulty and abuse and, and abandonment that their lives have presented them with. And so I, I'm, I'm in awe. And uh, so it, it, every day it feels like a privilege and I'm gone, you know, so I, I, my texting works. And so they, they endlessly text me. And, uh, but it's also kind of a ministry, I find. I have my texting ministry. Because, you know, even the, what's the huge time difference. But I'll just scroll through it and I'll see someone and go, hey, thinking about you, you know. And, and they're just blown away. Uh, psychologists would call it object constancy. It's, it's where the caregiver thinks about you, even when you're not there. And we all had that develop with our parents normally, where that's an extraordinary, soothing thing. But none of these kids have an experience of that. Consequently, it's the terrain of borderline personality and kids who can't trust other people. And, and that's the disorganized attachment that psychologists talk about. But then they gain that at Homeboy. And, and so it's nice to do that even when I'm here in Dublin where I can text a homie and, and just give them a sense of I'm so proud of you and just thinking about you right now. And, and then they're blown away by that. It's the most foreign thing. Meanness they know. Hostility they know. Violence they know. But for somebody to think about them when they're not there, that just blows them out of the water. So, I don't know. So you, you can find your ministry even uh, many hours and time difference away. On a text. Yes, a texting ministry. <laughs>